Hello and welcome to episode number six of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Matty Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with former All Black turned entrepreneur Andy Ellis. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Matty Lovell. Thank you very much for joining me. Honestly, hand on heart, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Andy Ellis. Now, he's an incredible guy. For start off, such a humble and down-to-earth guy, but a really interesting guy as well. Obviously, we chat about his career. He's been a professional athlete now for you know over 15 years, um, culminating, I guess, uh, being an all-black. He's had a stint in media and um, now he's an entrepreneur and a businessman as well. So we have a great chat about his career. We talk about the power of networking and a conversation with a Japanese butcher that turned into a new business venture. We talk about some of the things that he learned in the all black environment that have helped shape the philosophy that he now uses in business and life. We chat about life after rugby and we talk about why biting off more than you can chew is a good idea. He's a great guy. Thank you so much again to Andy for joining us. Enjoy the podcast. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. How are you? I'm really good, mate. I'm really good. Now, I know uh, you head out to Japan on Sunday. I know you're a busy man, so again, I really appreciate you making the time. I've known you for a number of years now, loosely, I guess, through friends of friends and bits and pieces, but in preparation for this interview, I did a bit of research and things, and you're probably one of the most diversely talented people I've ever sort of met. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but what I mean is that I guess most people will probably know part of your story, you know, through your, your rugby career and bits and pieces. But I guess what would be good to start with would be to go back and have a bit of a look, you know, explore your story a bit more, you know, where you started, what you do, and then sort of get into what you're doing now. So from what I've, I guess, researched, that landscape architecture is where it all sort of began for you. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I went overseas when I finished school, went to the UK, did a bit of a gap year like a lot of us Kiwis do, and uh, I came back from that sort of still not really too sure of what I wanted to do, applied for a rugby scholarship at Lincoln Uni and got that, and then I sort of had to figure out what degree I was actually going to do, and things like commerce and that didn't really appeal to me, mm-hmm. um, and the landscape architecture degree was one that probably really jumped out, and you know, I'd always loved design and I'd also love the outdoors you know so it kind of felt like a really good fit so that's kind of sort of how my landscaping background kicked off it's a four-year degree uh, and I got about two and a half years through the degree and then rugby kind of just happened all of a sudden quite quickly for me and I wasn't able to finish it and rugby kind of took off and I'm still playing now what, yeah. 15 years later. So I guess you're you playing rugby whilst you're at university and then you say it took off quite quickly as far as you started making the professional sides? Yeah, so because I'd been overseas playing cricket in the UK, when I came back, I was sort of out of the rugby circles, which can happen in New Zealand rugby a bit. So I played for University of Canterbury and um, made the seniors team, but I was on the bench and got to play a few games, ended up starting by the end of the season. And I made the the Canterbury under-19 B team. So they were called the Cantabrians. So that was cool, you know, but I certainly didn't think probably rugby was going to be a career. If I hadn't made it by that age, you know, I... How do you make it? You know, yeah, how do you yeah. kick on from there? Yeah. But ultimately, what happened is it sort of came down to one game, really. I, when I reflect back, Canterbury under 19B played New Zealand under 21 team that were preparing to go to the World Cup. Yeah. So it was the we like the trial game. And I had a really good game. I scored a couple of tries, got a couple of turnovers, and just played really well. And the 
the coach of the New Zealand under-21s, Bryce Woodward, who's an Auckland uh, Northland guy, he asked the Canterbury Rugby Union if I would go to the under-21 New Zealand trial the following year. And Canterbury Rugby Union hadn't really thought about me too much, I don't think. But quite quickly after that, they put me in the academy and yeah. the wider training groups and things like that. So anyway, I went to that under-21 trial the following year, made the New Zealand under-21s. By the end of that year, I made the Canterbury MPC team. The start of the following year, I made the Crusaders, played the Crusaders, and by midway through that year, I made the All Blacks. So, like honestly, mate, literally within um, it was quick. I yeah. was I was studying and battling through, driving my Nissan Bluebird, knowing that ten bucks got me exactly ninety four k. To kind of twelve months later getting given an XR8 Ford and rocking up to uni. And yeah, yeah. Feeling like the man. <laughs> I can imagine. What a transition. And and I guess then, I guess you, you made the decision to leave university? Yeah, well, it ultimately just became too much. The landscape architecture degree becomes really busy in the third and fourth year. There's a lot of long projects, all-nighters and stuff like that. Mm. And so correspondence wasn't even really an option as well. You had to be in a lot of classes and yep. a lot of time in studio. So I'd always figured I'd just put it on hold. And as we would travel a lot with the Crusaders, you know, through South Africa and wherever we went, and then the All Blacks end of year tours went for sort of six to eight weeks as well. Yep. So we were gone a lot of the lot of the year. So it just wasn't really feasible to, to yeah. carry on studying. Was it a tough decision at all? Because I know like, I mean, I can say I spoke to Marlon from uh, 660 last week and, and it was a sort of similar conundrum for them is that, you know, they sort of all got to the point and they were studying at university and so they had to make the decision to be like, we're going to leave university and follow this sort of dream of being a musician. Was it a similar sort of process or did you always think I can come back to it at any stage? Yeah, I thought I'd come back to it. I, I thought what a, I was just so proud to be able to play professional rugby. Like yeah. my family was so proud and yeah. all my friends were so proud. So for me, it was it was a no-brainer really. Um, I did think that I'd always just be able to come back to my yeah. landscape degree. You know, it's yeah. not, rugby's not something you can just come back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so I was, I was all in and I just gave it everything from well before that point. You know, I worked, trained really hard and stuff, gave myself the best chance. But from that point onwards, uni got put on hold and I was all about trying to make a career in, with, in rugby. I guess that's an important point as well is that there's quite a small window I guess to be a professional athlete of any means like just with your age and physical ability that um, you know you get the opportunity to go for it if you turn it down then then you, it might be hard to come back later on. Yeah absolutely and the other thing you know people talk a lot about the importance of balance with, with professional sport and I think it is really important to have stuff outside of professional sport or, or in my case rugby but at the same time you don't ever want to take any kind of shortcut or miss a trick or an opportunity with professional sport you want to give yourself you know the best chance as well so it's a fine line of getting that right and um I mean, 15 years later, hopefully I made a few right decisions. <laughs> yeah, well, you must have, absolutely. Did you think back then that you, 15 years later you'd say that you've been a professional rugby player? Ah, mate, not at all. You know, like I, I remember at the start I was like, oh, yes, I've got a one-year con- contract or a wider training group or whatever, and I just thought, you beauty, I might be able to potentially play overseas and do a bit of travel with us now, you know? Yeah. But we had a great environment with the Crusaders too and, and, and in the All Blacks where, you know, you just wanted to actually be better and you'd love, you became really great mates with a lot of guys you love the environment you actually really enjoyed what what we're doing and you know we, we were winning titles too you know one yeah. 2006 and 2008 won titles so it was just a good time to be there playing we just loved what I was doing so yeah. and then I guess sort of when that was happening you were also you know looking at things afterwards I know you did a sort of bit of a you're even still doing a bit of a stint in media as well I don't know, I suppose when you've been around cameras and um, microphones post-training sessions for 10 years or whatever it was I've done, um, yeah, that was quite fun to then, I jumped in a radio 
studio for a while and helped out at, at Classic Hits, did the morning show there. So I was a little bit busy for a couple of years there. I'd, they were pretty good at, with me in there and so were Canterbury and Crusader Rugby, but I'd start at six and I would be out of there by eight. So I had a little scooter, I'd cruise in and get in there for six o'clock, do the show, have a bit of a laugh, talk some smack and then um, jump on my scooter at eight o'clock and be, have to be at rugby park for 8.30 gym session or meeting, you know. So yeah. um, it was busy at the time, but it was a really good experience for me. And that was a time too where I was out of the all black mix. So kind of gave me a, a nice wee focus and I was able to start thinking a little bit about what I wanted to do post rugby. Yeah, and is that and that's a, an area I'd like to talk about a little bit because – you know, when you are a professional sportsman, obviously there is a time frame when you're not going to be a, a rugby player forever, you know, just physically. Do you think about what you're going to do afterwards or is that a distraction to what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think you have to have a bit of a plan. Like I said a bit earlier, you don't want to even miss a trick or opportunity with rugby, so you want to be all in, but you do need to have stuff going on and you need to start thinking about what you're going to do outside rugby thing is, rugby in New Zealand, there are a lot of opportunities. So early on in my career, I just decided that whenever we had a, f- uh, a sponsors function, we do a lot of these, we do probably a couple a week, you know, afternoons or evening functions. I try and make a real effort to connect and talk with people. And often it's the last thing you feel like doing after a big day at training or whatever. But it was just something I decided I'd put a real focus on it. So I'd um, make sure I connected and talked to people. I'd get business cards. You know, a lot of the people at these things were owners of businesses or companies in town and I'd often flick them an email the next morning or that night and just say, thanks, nice to meet you. If I can ever do anything to help you, let me know and, you know, vice versa. So that was really important for me and I, I tried to build a bit of a network through my rugby career as well. So, you know, whatever I did decide to do afterwards, hopefully I'd have some people that I could at least kind of talk to. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my mindset around it and I think ultimately it, it helped out a bit. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, networking is a phenomenal way. I mean, all the most successful business people tend to be good networkers. You know, relationships seem to be key, and the fact they've sort of gone onto that early is probably um, you know one of the reasons that's led to your success. Yeah, I, don't, um, I mean, I don't want it. To, it's not, it wasn't a cheesy thing. I actually yeah, genuinely yeah, do yeah, quite yeah. like um, yeah. talking to people as well. So it was, it was all good, but it was just a nice way to never just sit, stand in the corner with a bunch of the boys and yeah. and go mute. You know, yeah, try and well, make an effort. It's a mutual thing as well because you know it's not like you're just you're asking for anything. You're saying, "Hey, look, if I can ever be a value, and no one's going to ring you unless it is valuable." Oh, there's good buggers everywhere too. Absolutely, you know, this kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, totally. And then I guess your your newest venture that I want to sort of talk about a little bit: the Wagyu beef. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, well, I've been in Japan playing there for five years now, and uh, my local butcher actually in Kobe, where I'm playing. He went to high school in New Zealand, Westlake Boys. Mm-hmm. And so he owns butcheries, he owns restaurants and also farms in the Kobe area. And uh, we got talking, he speaks good English, we got talking and he said one thing he'd always wanted to do was Wagyu done properly, grain-fed in New Zealand, the world's kind of premium beef mm-hmm. done in New Zealand, you know, where our, I suppose our, our environment and our feeds and things are probably premium in the world as well, you know. So, and he, he could never understand why it had never been done. Why would they not do the best meat in the world in New Zealand mm-hmm. or the best beef in the world, sorry, in New Zealand? So, that's kind of how the conversation started. And he's a pretty um, savvy businessman and he likes to get things done. So, committed to it. And um, we, kind of brought this concept back to New Zealand and the concept is Japanese techniques in New Zealand's environment really yeah. ultimately. So, mate, we were really fortunate to get a, a farmer, a, a really large um, dairy farmer involved in Chertsey just out of Rakaia. He was all on board. He put the, the Wagyu bulls across his dairy herd so we get the F1 calves out of them, the crossbreed calves and then 
they're on grass for, for 12 to 16 months and then they go into the, the feedlot after that. And it's a standing moving around feedlot. It's not like there's a bit of a perception in New Zealand around, you know, the, the chicken feed and the um and the pigs and stuff. But this is this is beautiful, man. These these animals love being where they are. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And I guess, you know, it's what we were just talking about. We talked about networking and now you're talking about how this opportunity that came in. I guess that's an important point is the opportunities sometimes turn up when you least expect them that it's just a local butcher in Japan and then next minute it turns out that you're I don't know what do you call it? A, 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 I don't know what I am really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's entrepreneur. I, I, I like I to call myself a farmer but I don't know how well that would go down with the actual yeah, farmer you've probably got a couple of pairs of red bands I'd assume <laughs> yeah that, brand new yeah yeah, I can imagine so now you're doing that and I believe you've got a restaurant as well up in yeah yeah so there's a restaurant a bit of a flagship restaurant in Britomart um, yep. called Mad Samurai so we put a lot of the beef through there we sort of started social media and the web page and stuff and the interest from in New Zealand has amazed me I can't believe how into it I think the top chefs they get it because of you know they've tra- travelled all over the world and they understand that the quality and the the product I suppose and yeah. so when we send samples people are blown away that it's actually yeah. from New Zealand and and the beauty is too is on the farm we we grow everything so we grow all the barley the wheat the corn oh, so, really? it's, yeah. so it's a it's a whole program is done on yeah. our farm and the animals are looked after really well so yeah. it's a kind of a beautiful New Zealand story you know and, yeah. the, and then the chefs get to experience this sort of New Zealand story and and they're blown away it's really yeah. cool. Why is it so good? Why is Wagyu beef so? I've tried it once. I worked on yachts overseas, and there was a bit left over after the guest one night, and I tried it. But um, is it the type of cow? Is it the feed? Is it the combination? Yeah. So the so the Wagyu cow is a Japanese cow, and they opened their gates and exported some genetics kind of for a few years up until the late 80s and then they realized kind of what was going on yeah. and um, kind of put a stop to it. So they haven't exported any. Wagyu genetics from that point onwards. So they're, they're still very much premium in the world market, but there are some very good genetics through the States, Australia, and New Zealand. So we've sourced that. And the beauty of it probably is is the marbling. So and it's not everyone's to everyone's taste, but yeah. it's it's got a very fine white marbling through the meat. So it's not like the your sort of grass-fed yellowy kind of fat that you know we probably grew up used yeah. to. It's it's very fine. It's very soft. It sort of melts it at body temperature, really. So wow. it's a completely different kind of texture and flavour. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's a mixture of genetics and feed. Yeah. Are the main things with it. So if you've got very good genetics and you've got a really good feed program, then you can produce this kind of top sort of end product and it, and it gets scaled so gets scaled the marbling is kind of how they scale okay, it. Yeah. Or, or a lot of ways value it so yeah. so one is very little marbling might just be red meat and then 12 is highly marbled and very expensive yeah ours are at a point where about an eight and a nine sometimes which is on a world stage is pretty impressive yeah and what's your role in it you know like i know obviously you're living overseas mostly in japan are you sort of involved in the operations of it or yeah, um, I suppose so. I'm I'm helping run our social media stuff. Yeah. I'm talking and meeting with a lot of chefs and restaurants. The amount of private chefs in New Zealand, I had no idea. Really? Yeah, it's it's awesome, eh? There's some rich dudes around. Yeah, yeah. yeah rich people, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm meeting, talking with people. Um, we're making decisions on um, what genetics we're going to import from overseas. What you know, what we've got here in New Zealand, what we're going to buy, what's next. I'll go and visit the bull farms and yeah. help out there. I'm sort of, I suppose, educating myself as well along the way, but really enjoying the process. Yeah, I bet you are. And look, obviously to be, if we look at your, your rugby career, you're obviously you're gifted physically to be able to do that. But what's unique about you, I guess, is that you've managed to be successful in a number of different endeavours. You know, you've done a number of different things and maybe rugby is your primary one. But I guess what I'm curious to explore 
what do you think's allowed you to achieve success in a number of different areas of your life? I say yes to things. I say yes is another sort of, I'm proud of myself that I say yes to things, yeah. you know. Um, so I reckon that's one thing. And then when I'm there, I really try and give it a go, try and give it 100% and um, try and do the best I can. I heard Jock Hobbs speak at the 2011 World Cup. I think it was before we played, it might have even been before the final. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was pretty sick with c- yes, cancer then. Right, yeah, yeah he, he died not too long after, but... One of the things he talked about and it always stuck with me was whatever he did, he went out there and he tried to be the best in the world at it. So he said whether it was rugby or his job or, or anything he did in life, he went out there day by day and tried to be the best in the world at it. Now, often he wasn't the best in the world at it, but if he tried to be like that, if he tried to do be the best in the world at it, at least he'd give it a decent crack and be bloody good at it at least. So I kind of take that off him a little bit as well and I don't want to come across wanky, you know, but I yeah. just I, I try and do it and try sort of to be the best in the world at it. Yeah, and clearly that's that's not the case. But at least if I'm trying, yeah, um, I might get close one day. No, it's a good point, and I, I think one of my other guests it spoke about the idea that the you know, people always have that sort of jack of all, master of none mindset, and he flipped it on its head, and and he liked to he said, well, I want to be the master of all, jack of none, and and sometimes even just in the the effort of aiming to be you know the world's best at something sort of changes the way you approach something, and I also think that. There's probably an innate set of transferable skills that successful people have, you know, and it might even it might not necessarily be a skill. I think, you know, even just some things like discipline, perseverance, you know, like your ability to network and your ability to say yes and give things a go and and even the way you approach something that you're gonna try and be the best at the world at it, whether you are or not, I think is a um is probably a fairly good indicator of someone that's being successful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's it, right? And I've seen it in, in a lot of different fields, you know. But particularly in my rugby career, I think um, your ability to deal with adversity and stick at it and perseverance—they go a long way. If you can just hang in there and keep fighting and keep fighting, that's actually one of the real golden tickets in life, I reckon. Yeah, I imagine. And I mean, if we talk about adversity, I mean, I guess. In New Zealand with rugby, like it's it's about as big as you get, particularly being an all black. And you must there's challenges that everyone faces in, you know, whether it's in business or sport or life. But I guess when you're an all black, it's quite public almost, you know. And did you have methods of overcoming challenges or dealing with, you know, like professional sport's brutal. It's like if you're not good enough, it's like, well, there's someone else behind you who's gonna keep trying. And is there a way or a methodology or an approach that you had to overcoming challenges either in your sporting career or in your in your business afterwards? I think getting to that point in the first place, you know, like if, if you can get to that point where you get to wear a black jersey, you know, that's when the work starts as well. But yeah. And often they talk about in the rugby circles that better people make better all blacks. I don't really know if that's true because not all the blokes I've played with are great blokes. Yeah. Some are pretty average blokes. But what they do have is the ability to fight really hard for what they want. Some of them have had bloody tough upbringings where some parents would never have dropped them to footy in the morning or, or been able to get to the gym, but they've found a way to keep fighting and work through that adversity and be persistent and be really driven. And I think ultimately that's kind of the real test. If you can get through that adversity and still come out the other end it doesn't matter if you're a good bloke or a bad bloke mate you've got to yeah. have respect for that it's pretty impressive yeah, absolutely and do you have any strategies for that for dealing with adversity or overcoming challenges that you've faced at all yeah we do we talk a lot about it in the high professional sport you know there are lots of sort of techniques I suppose you can use mm. um, on the field itself if you make errors it can be hard to move on to the next task for example you know some big yeah. crowds we play in front of um, yeah. so we talk about strategies for me it was um, 
I used to just push my toes into the ground. It would straight away take um, the focus from what I was thinking about or the error I'd done to my toes in the ground and then I was able to go next task focus after that. So little things like that help. I know all the boys have got their different kind yes. of ways of dealing with it. And then I think um, away from that, media scrutiny and all that sort of stuff, yeah. it can be pretty tough. Ways of dealing with it, I think in rugby there's always, there's always the next week. So if you can just try, for me it was always just trying to stay positive and focused and um, knowing before it all started or you know that it's going to be like this that's yeah. a good strategy to actually have and then the next week often it's a different story anyway so it is tough but um, it's also just the reality of what we do and if you know that that's coming then it goes a long way yeah and I guess that's the trade off of being in such a high performance environment have you ever used the toes thing for anything else like have you ever been oh yeah yeah oh, I've been rattled a few times in bars where I've just felt my toes and yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I do. I, I try and stay pretty level-headed most yeah. of the time. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing because I've heard a similar thing that you know, in a if you're dealing with a customer in a retail or even just a business environment, that if, if someone's frustrating you or not sort of being realistic in their uh, their opinion, then you curl your feet up and just try and call them into fists, and again, just taking that attention off. Take it away, yeah. Right, so it's funny nice. you say that. <laughs> hey, um, you know, we talk about All Blacks being you know high-performance environment and culture and. That particular environment is infamous. You know, there's books about it, there's movies about it. Are there things that you learnt in that environment that, I mean, my first question was, you know, did you learn anything? But I would think that you would have to learn something in that All Blacks environment. Is there anything particularly you look back and you're like, hey, look, out of being an All Black, this was a, a real key takeaway for me that I've been able to maybe utilise in other aspects of my life? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, rugby circle, All Black circles, there are different people from different parts of the country, all from different walks of life. And there's not it's not often that you get an environment like that and still be able to all connect with each other and, and make it work in a certain way. So I reckon my ability to deal with different people from different religions and different races and different beliefs, um, but still be able to sort of buy into a, a common goal. I reckon that's that's something I've really taken away and something I've sort of tried to transfer into a lot of what I'm doing mm. now. You know, even in our Wagyu business, there's, there's me, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking smack. Um, yeah. We've got Arato, the Japanese business partner who's um, who's very good at what he does and then you've got Craig the farmer who's cruising around with a rip shirt you know but we're able to come together and we're all really connected and we've got a common goal and I think that's pretty cool yeah totally probably the other thing you take away from my time in the All Blacks is we have leadership groups we have a lot of small meetings within our mini units for example you know the inside backs the nines and tens and twelves we talk about what our roles are within the team and what we need to do and then we'll connect with other mini units. So we might need to connect with, I don't know, say the tight forwards, the, the locks, for example, and and then we'll go and have a coffee with them and we'll have a discussion about the detail in the game and, and even just building relationships like yep. that. You know, we're just forming that tightness. I might be telling them, you know, how I need the ball off the top of a line out or, or you know, it could be a range of things. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're just, just having those small conversations. So... I've found that those microcoms within a team are bloody invaluable and, and the devil is often in the detail yep. and you never take that for granted. Always always push those small conversations, make sure you're over everything so that when you're in the heat of the battle or you're making a big business decision, 
you've actually got all your facts. You know what you're doing. You've trained it. You worked hard on it. You've talked to everyone who's yeah. involved, and you can make the right call. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the you know the first lesson you you pulled out about sort of I guess being able to unite a team of people towards a common vision is um, unanimous amongst. Anything, you know, anyone that's going to be successful has to generally have the ability to unite a group of people potentially from different backgrounds towards a common vision. I think that's a great point. They're the greatest leaders, you know, they, they really are. And people look at a captain, often it's not a captain. A captain is just the one that's out there um, doing the toss. Yeah. There's often a group of six or seven leaders that will meet once a week and oh, yeah. um, they'll decide the direction of the team, they'll decide where the trainings are going too long. So they'll tell the coach and that'll get changed, whether we might drop a wait session this week so that we can be fresher for the game yep. that leadership group really does drive the team and yep. that's where you get all the buy-in from the rest of the boys yeah and I think that's um, an important thing I mean I was always told that as a manager a leader the, the best thing you can ask your team is what do you think you know and I think often when you are a leader as such whether it's in, in your title or, or otherwise that it can be sometimes easy to just get carried away and make decisions, but sometimes asking your team what they think or and having those micro conversations about what their job is and how what we can do to make their job better is a really efficient way. Even if you know the answer, yeah. I can even more so, even if you know what the answer is or what you think the answer should be, go and ask and see how they feel and see if you can kind of... Well, not manipulate, but kind of get your point yep. of view across and see how they connect with that. And if they, yep. then they're in, then you know, then you can present it to the group and yep. you've got buy-in. Yeah, because totally. people feel like it's it's a joint decision. Yeah, totally. If you plan the fight, you don't fight the plan. Yeah, big time. And that's what I was taught. What is it like being an All Black? You know, like uh, it's quite a broad question, I guess. But I wanted to ask you it because I think that. And All Black is probably a dream of, you know, a huge percentage of, of young New Zealanders. You know, like I remember, you know, when I was young, it's like, what do you want to be? It's like, oh, an All Black or an astronaut. You know, it's such an, a big, admirable job. <laughs> goal. I don't know. Aspiration is probably a good word for, for a lot of people. What's it actually like when you get named in a team, you become an All Black? I think your debut was in Twickenham, so like a, a big arena. What's that like? Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's amazing. How I feel now is probably different to how I felt about it then. You know, like now I, I, I'm i so proud of to be an All Black. It was a dream when I was a little kid. I, I didn't go to rugby schools. So I went to a little country school and Burnside High School, just a big co-ed, you know. We don't, we've only got one rugby team there, you know. And so to be able to come through that system and put the black jersey on, I'm so proud. And I'm, I'm so proud for my um, family and all my friends and – you know, my wife I met at high school as well. You know, it's I look back and um I'm sort of really proud that I was able to do it for all of them. Yeah, I think so. Because I know that they're proud. You know, like dad goes to work and he gets to talk about a footy, you know, with yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so cool, man. Yeah. Um so yeah. in that respect, oh, I'm so proud. At the time I was pretty nervous, you know. Um I was only a young fella, yeah, played my my debut against um England at Twickenham, you know, when I got named, I just got I I think I I did I jumped in the pool with all my clothes on I think did you yeah um, <laughs> like it was an incredible feeling yeah. you know um, to be able to do that and there's a lot of ups and downs it's really tough you know I was I was in and out a little bit of that all black environment so it, could, it can be pretty tough and pretty challenging on on everyone you you love and, you, and your friends and family you know? but ultimately when you look back now yeah gee man like what an honor oh, yeah i'm so proud and i've got a young fella too and all he wants to do every morning he's four years old all he wants to do is put his all black kit on every day he doesn't know that yeah i think he knows dad might have played for you i don't know he yeah. really talked to him about it that much but yeah. i just see him and he wants to play rugby and 
you know, I would have been like that when I was a young fella. So it's, no, it's pretty cool. I can imagine. It's really cool. And I guess now you've got that sort of, I guess, notoriety of being an all black. And then when you moved into, you know, sort of this, I mean, you said you were conscious about networking throughout that time. Moving into business, was there a point where there was a transition for you? I mean, I guess you're still playing rugby, but what I'm trying to ask is when I spoke to Rob Waddell, he talked about the idea of when he transferred from sport to business, Often when you're a high performer or when you've been focused on something for an extended period of time, your identity can be wrapped up in what you're doing. You know, like it's it's like I am a musician or I am a rower or I am a rugby player or I am a, you know, a doctor or whatever it is. And then when you make that transition to something else, it's sort of like maybe not the part of you missing, but you sort of really identified with that before. Is that something you're conscious of or thought about? That's a fair question. Because I'm still playing, I haven't had to deal with that yet. Yeah. So this will be my last year playing professional rugby in Japan and I'll finish up sort of mid next year. It's something that I think about a lot and it's something that I'm I'm very conscious of. I've asked a lot of my good mates who have finished playing what it's been like because I know from the stats that it's bloody tough. Like it's really tough. And yeah, it'll be a mixture of that, but it but it's status thing. Probably gone. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's hard to tell until you've been there, you know. Yeah. But what I do know is that, and I won't name names, but I, I, this is a question I've asked all, all, all of them because yeah. I, I really want to know and I want to have a good strategy to be able to deal with it. But there's been some guys who have been sitting in, in an office three months after they finished playing, looking around the office and they've started crying and one guy said that he wished he never played rugby in the first place because he wouldn't be sitting there as a 36-year-old with an office job that he doesn't really know what he's doing yet. So I think a mixture probably of stopping what you'd love doing since you were young and maybe losing a little bit of that, you know, getting to put the jersey on, run out with your mates and and all that. And I I don't know if it's a status thing as much, but also I think just starting a a new career and not really knowing and, you know, what what most of our mates did when they were 22 or 23 when they they went out and got a job. A lot of those guys are now managers of – of companies or businesses yeah, yeah. or in their roles and a lot of us are just starting out. You yeah. know, I've got Corey Flynn, yeah, he's a great mate and yeah. he's um, he's loving what he's doing but he's doing his building apprenticeship out on the tools, you know, and he's, he? it's great, he's loving it but, you know, that's something that most guys would have done at a young age and a lot of the guys Flynn he's working with and now, you know, fully yeah. qualified builders, you know, so it's just the way it is. It's, it's, yeah. it's the nature of the game and... Um, yeah, it's just it's an interesting thing because yeah, I mean, I guess there is you go from. Uh, I also think the camaraderie you probably have from as an outsider looking in, you know, like a team environment that you have in a sports team, is probably one of real sort of kinship. You know, you get really close with the team you're playing with, and all of a sudden you move into a business or a work environment, and even though you might have a wonderful team, it's like you're never going to be as close as you are with the guys that you've played with for the last ten years. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of it too. You know, you lose that mateship, I suppose, and. You know, in rugby environments too, you you're told where you got to be at certain times, and if you're late, you're in a lot of trouble. You find five hundred bucks. You know, if you yeah. if you're late to a meeting, you know, you can get in a lot of trouble, or you cannot play that weekend. Um, you're told what you wear. You get your passport handed to you at the airport when you go on an overseas trip. Like yeah. this, all that stuff is a way of life for for years and years and years for a lot of guys who who are, are lucky enough to play that long. And so when that's gone, it's it can be a real shock to the system. You know, you, you mate ship, you lose that kind of camaraderie. Um, yeah. But then also that routine that you're used to in your life, yeah, yeah, it's kind of gone a little bit too. 
Is there any sort of strategy or anything you've sort of focused on or, or something you're going to try and do when that move does happen for you? I'm trying to put some money aside so that I can have the first six or 12 months off. That's probably one of the big things a lot of guys told me, just being really aware not to just jump into something and rush into something, give yourself time, keep some conversations going, kind of disconnect from rugby and then figure out you know what you're actually all about the other thing probably too is we're really lucky with the New Zealand Rugby Players Association there's a lady employed full time who helps transition from rugby and for overseas guys too so she flew over to Japan and met with me and my club and do a, a, like a careers kind of you know online thing to figure out you know, what yeah. you're into and what you like and could they help study and even help fund some of the study wow. for you to do. So yeah. we are really lucky with what's in place and probably the fact that it is in place shows how tough it has been on mm. a lot of people. You know, um, yeah. I, and, they, and they do catch up. A lot of the old boys still catch up and they'll have um, discussions and just make sure they see how everyone's getting on, how they're going, you know, what, what different people are into, bit of business networking where, where they can too. So yeah. there is all that going on but – I mean, ultimately, what I've what I've learned, it is it is going to be really hard. It's going to yeah. be tough. And um, as a mid thirties man, I'm going to have to f- try and figure out what's next. Yeah, yeah, totally. I've no doubt you'll be successful, whatever you whatever you end up doing. But you know, like, and you look at something like the NRL, they have uh, you know some problems with these young guys at 24, 25, and they're earning you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. All of a sudden, they're no longer in this environment, and they're again you know, quite a, a loss of identity for them. So, I've got a, a friend who um, uh, Mark Abbott, who played for the Hurricanes for, oh, yeah. for a while, and he he said their their sort of philosophy was that you're a human being a lot longer than you're a rugby player. And I really like that. They're sort of like, you know, they're, they're encompassing that there is going to be a transition at some stage and they're focused on that, which I think is um, is a really cool thing, you know, and, and we're lucky to have that in New Zealand. Yeah, we are. And you could understand too, you end up living a certain way of life too as a, as a professional rugby player anyway, where like things like buying coffees and stuff, it's not really an issue. You, you, you can buy two or three coffees a day or you don't mind going out for lunch with the boy. Like you just yeah. do this and dinner's out, it's no worries, you get a nice bottle of wine. Mate, what happens? It dries up, you know. It's, yeah. it's gone, and so when you finish, so mate, you got to have strategies for all that sort of stuff too, yeah, and, yeah. and probably be really careful with budgeting. And mate, yes. interview me again in eighteen months' time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> I'll leave you sitting here crying. Or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole lifestyle change, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, lifestyle change. Yeah, and it and it'll be the same with the girls too. You know, the the yeah. partners and the kids. Are like, it'll be a lifestyle change things will be done a lot differently but you know I, I know it's coming and yeah. you're just going to have to have a good plan around it well the fact that you're conscious about it is um, is probably the most important thing you're not just expecting it to be a, um, a fluid process is, is probably a good point and obviously you've got you know you've got some businesses sort of interests as well was that something that you'd always wanted to do like owning a business is quite a um, some people are happy to go and work for other people but is, was owning your own business always something you wanted to do maybe I don't know it kind of evolved that way really you know through a lot of the people I met and um, I kept really good relationships so if opportunities came up I could have a look at them and discuss them and see if I could add value to them probably the thing for me was was the relationships themselves so if they were really good people like my butcher in Japan yeah. um, you know, I love to go and do something with them because I trust them and I believe in them and, and that's the way it is it's the same with my the internet company sort of got going on really good bloke Tim the CEO and so I, I connect with him really well uh, he gets it we've got a really good relationship so I trust and uh, I feel happy to invest and I can sort of help on the side where I can yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm lucky that rugby gives us a few wins and with different meetings and things yeah, totally, like that yeah. um, but you know that's kind of my role with all that stuff yeah yeah no, it was really cool though and at the moment how are you balancing time like 
before we off here, I sort of told you like my life seems pretty full on at the moment with a, with a baby and a puppy and businesses and bits and pieces. But you know, h- how do you do it at the moment? You've you've got a family, you've got business interests, you're still a sportsman. Like, how are you balancing your time and energy? I just go hard. I just go, <laughs> I do. Yeah. Well, I, I know that um, with rugby, rugby's coming to an end, and my wife's really supportive too. So while I'm while I'm back and I've got this four month off season, which is great because I can try these different things, I just go hard. You know, so. I, Getting around New Zealand a little bit and having different meetings and and, yep. and chatting, but I actually really like what um, the Mile Boys said. Um, Jeff Ross, you know, people told him don't bite off more than you can chew, and he said take a massive bite and chew like fuck. Yeah, you know, and I love that. Like yeah. that's kind of again, I sort of like to roll like that a bit too. Eh? Like, yeah, I try and say yes to everything, and I just make it happen somehow. You know, and sometimes I can get in a bit of trouble at home because we're pretty overcommitted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty booked up, eh? But yeah. no, nah, it's it's you know it's good. Eh? I love I love living like that. I love I love going hard. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to be, and that's a good philosophy. One thing I noticed about you is compared to a number of other different sort of I guess sports people is you don't have a social media sort of presence. And whether you do or not, like if you do, it's completely private. So I'm not interested in that. But was that a conscious decision you made, or are you just not interested in like you know like? being on Facebook or Instagram because particularly nowadays with, you know, when you look at some of the professional sports people, the following that they can amass on those can actually become something you can utilise for business purposes. Yeah, mate, I don't know. That's honest, the honest, yeah, yeah. honest answer. No, I don't, I don't have a private account or anything like yeah. that. Um, I jump on my, my wife's one a little bit more <laughs> now because, you know, we've got good mates that are all living and playing overseas yeah, so yeah, I can yeah. kind of keep in touch a little bit that way around. Yeah. Um, I just don't know. People ask me this, why don't I have a social media yeah. account? So it wasn't a conscious decision, it was just something you never bought into? I, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe deep down, maybe I didn't want people to be able to say what they, they thought of me. Yeah, I'm certainly not too worried about that but yeah. I, I just didn't need that in my life. Like, you know, if you, yeah. I'll just carry on doing my thing, and yeah, I don't know, mate. So it's yeah. a funny one. I've got the um, I'm helping with our the Waitaha Wagyu yeah. Instagram page, yeah. and I love that, mate. Like, I'll, yeah. it's almost addictive. Like, how many followers <laughs> have we got? Oh, for someone like that, yeah, like, what picture it? are we going to put up? What yeah. comment do you put? Like, it's all encompassing, eh? Yeah. But um, so yeah, I wouldn't really like to be doing that with. With the rest of my life, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in times, I think, oh, well, I'm, I'm up to some good stuff, and we yeah, yeah. have a lot of fun, so it would be good as well. So I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, I, I was just wondering if it was a conscious decision or not, because um, you must have so much more time. Maybe that's how you're so busy. Because I, you know, I've got this app on my phone that tells me each day how much time I've spent on it, because it tries yeah. to hold me accountable to it. <laughs> yeah, good. You know, and you're like, and it's hard to sit there and be, you know, say you're busy when your phone flashes up and says you've been on it for, you know, three hours a day or something. You're like, well. <laughs> There's yeah. a clear opportunity there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe that's how you've got so much time as well. Um, got a couple of questions to finish off. What are you most proud of? Like you've done a lot of different things and you know, you've got a family and you've you still have got an illustrious football career and you've won awards as a landscape gardener. You've you know, you've done all this different stuff. And when you look back, what is it the sort of you're most proud of? Oh, I'm just I'm proud of my family. I really am. Yeah. Um I love my wife. We you know, I met her at high school when we were fifteen. We've got two beautiful kids now, we've travelled the world and now we live a pretty cool life and lifestyle back home. So that's that's the thing I'm most proud of. And my, my kids are awesome wee kids. My my daughter's a champion. My wee boy's just so much energy, you know, and puts a smile on my face every day. So that's the thing I'm most proud of. And all the other stuff is great fun. Like I say, I just I'm full noise with it. I love it. I love being really busy and I'm proud of all of it. But yeah, nah, for sure, man, my family, hundred percent. Good answer. Have you thought about what success means to you, or how you how you define it? And maybe maybe it is your family, but I guess the reason I ask is because you know often a lot of people don't think about you know what success actually 
is to them, you know, like, because, I mean, for example, if you said to someone, like, what's the most important thing to you? And they might say, like, well, health, you know, if I don't have my health, I don't have anything. It's like, well, are you healthy? And is your family healthy? They said, you say, absolutely. And I say, well, how successful do you feel? And you're like, well, not really. And I guess there's that, that sort of juxtaposition between a lot of people don't define what successful is actually going to mm. mean to them. And if you don't even define what it is, it's really hard to get there. Yeah. Have you thought about what success is for you? Not really. Um, I know that it's not so much money, but I also understand that in business, for example, you've got to be um, making good money and that is that ultimately shows that your business is, yeah. is going all right. Yeah. You know? So I get that. But for me, it's more about um, probably the, the relationships that I've, that I've made with my business partners and, mm-hmm. and how, we, how well we get on, you know. Um, Talking to the Maori beer boys at the moment about yeah. trying to get some of their old um, brewers grain in to feed our wagyu oh, yeah. is kind of quite, quite a cool sort of story yeah, yeah, with yeah. it too. So I'm, you know, meeting those boys and, and um, forming relationships there. I love that. Some of the chefs, like I'm, I'm so proud that they love our product and I, I love ringing them up. Or they ring me up and they say, "Can we come down and visit your farm so we can see it?" Like I, for me, that's that yeah, success, yeah. mate. You've nailed it, you know. Yeah. And so, I, and I haven't really had a good think about it, but. Probably those relationships yeah, yeah. Um, and taking something I don't know, from nothing really. We didn't really have a business and, and making it into something that I think is going to be world famous, you know, in New yeah. Zealand. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. I'd be pretty proud of, of that. And I suppose I think that was pretty successful. Yeah, totally. No, you're completely right. And I think, you know, I've been thinking about it. And success changes, I think, as you grow old and as you go through different stages of your life. You know, when you're 15, success is, you know, having a girlfriend or kissing a girl, or, you yeah, know, yeah, and then nice. you get to 21 and success is, getting a job and then as you go older it becomes things like family and what's important and you know like you've mentioned you know having relationships that matter and you know creating something out of nothing and I think it's an interesting concept My, you know I always think reevaluating what what success means to you is quite a, um, a useful exercise just to define again where you are and, and how where you want to go as well mate that's I wish I had that answer because you'd spot on there right? it changes and I reckon it changes every year it can change every six months what what success is for you you know is, is it a successful transition out of rugby into the next field or yeah. is it you, you know getting your kids doing the right things or whatever it is yeah, eh? yeah. it does change a lot yeah it's a good way of looking yeah. at it and I guess yeah, when your kids get older when having your kids turn around and say I love you or I miss you like that would just you know I think about that with a daughter my daughter now and it, you know that would just feel like I've made it you know and she wants to spend time with you or, or something like that so yeah it probably is a, a moving target as well Handy. as we finish off what's on your mind at the moment as far as you know, it could be anything. I'm just interested to see where your attention is. You know, like, are you, what are you thinking about as far as, you know, is there a restaurant you like? Is there a TV show or a Netflix thing that you've been, you know, waiting for a new episode to come out? Is there a, uh, a particular food that you're enjoying? Is there a, um, you know, is there anything that's sort of. On my mind right now is uh, fitness testing at my club in Japan on Monday. <laughs> and I fly and I arrive in about Sunday midnight from yeah. New Zealand. Oh, and really? I'm going to have to front up and try and run a good time. Because if I don't, I'll be in a lot of trouble with Wayne Smith, our director of rugby. <laughs> That's Fair the one enough. thing on my mind at the moment. <laughs> oh, good, man. I'll let you get into uh, maybe go for a run or something this afternoon. Yeah, um, anything you want to leave anyone with? Um, obviously, I mean, how can people find and, and, and buy your, your beef? Jump online, where, um, follow us on Instagram, Waitaha Wagu. Is that how you do this Instagram stuff? Hashtag? Yeah, I reckon yeah, yeah, yeah. you can find it. Yeah, so um, and, and same, same. we've got a website too, waitahawagu.nz, so you can jump on and check it out. Um, we're, we're, we're still doing small numbers, two or three a month, yeah. but kind of by this time next year, 
Two or three what? Two or three w- wagyu per month. Oh yeah, yeah. So just yeah. just small numbers and supplying sort of four or five key restaurants in Auckland, trying to keep consistent supply. Yeah. Um, by the end of the year, we'll be doing sort of ten or twenty a month. So the numbers yeah. will ramp right up. So wow. And how do we spell it? Waitaha. W A I. Yeah. T A H A means Canterbury. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice time. Yeah, sort of wanted that to go across the world. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And the idea is for it to become world famous. You said it before. I like that. Mate, we've had we've had some awesome feedback. We've got forward orders from Singapore and Malaysia. And really? I mean, I'll, I'll just leave you with this because I don't <laughs> want to pump us up too much. Yeah. The big thing from the Japanese Wagyu Society who have tasted it, they say it is uh, our water quality is superior. So that plays a big effect, obviously, on the Wagyu themselves. Yeah. Um, but also the water that grows all our grains means that we have amazing feed, you know, some of the best feed in the world through the Canterbury Plains. So yeah. our barley and our mixes and stuff is awesome. So that's what our Wagyu are eating, and I think it's, it's paying divvies. Good man, good man. Hey, well done. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck for your fitness testing, and um, I have no doubt that your transition from rugby will be nothing but successful. <laughs> Cheers, mate. And there it is. Once again, thank you so much to Andy for joining me on today's podcast. I know he's a busy man, so I really appreciate him making the time. And with a philosophy like, bite off everything you can and chew fast as fuck. It's no wonder the man has been successful. Hey, also thank you so much to you. I know I say this a lot, but honestly, hand on heart, I really appreciate you listening. Um, I love having these conversations. I love producing the podcast and the fact that other people enjoy listening to them too really makes me happy. So thank you so much for joining us today and for listening. Um, One thing, this podcast isn't free to produce. Um, I get all the audio professionally edited and produced, and I also um, it also costs money to host the website, which allows this podcast to appear free on places like iTunes and Spotify, which is probably where you're listening to it now. Now, I cover those costs through speaking gigs. I'm a speaker, and um, I really, it's something else I really, really enjoy doing. Um, I share my story of adversity um, through an accident I had in 2011 and, I guess, the Christchurch earthquakes as well, and how I came full circle through that. I pull out lessons that are relevant in both the business and life, and, I, again, I really enjoy speaking and... Um, Look, all that money I make from speaking goes directly into producing this podcast. So all I can ask is that if you or an organization you know or are involved with are looking for a speaker, all I ask is that you could just put my name forward. You can find all the information online at mattylovell.com forward slash speaking. And again, all that money I make just comes straight back into producing this podcast, which hopefully you are still listening to. So thank you once again. If you did enjoy the episode, you can do one of two things. Firstly, please share it with someone you know or someone you think may get very value from it or alternatively just jump online to iTunes and leave a review good ones only though please that's how people find the podcast other than that thank you so much once again to Andy and thank you to you for listening that's it have a great day see ya bye